0: We have requirements and we pay, literally, based on butts and seats. So we are measuring the wrong end of the student and we are financing around it, and so you want to talk incentives. Everything is built around that, and that's true in higher education as well. It's the same thing. We're looking at credit hours. Did you get enough credit hours? Not, did you get learning or did you get a job?
1: Every decision we make is guided by incentives. Group incentives, individual incentives, how we are rewarded shapes how we behave and the choices we make. From financial incentives to social and political incentives, our lives are shaped by the external forces pushing us in certain directions. Have you ever thought about why you do what you do or why decisions get made a certain way? We were curious about this and decided to do a deep dive on the topic of incentives in this special three-part podcast series called, What Drives Us? I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Catalyst for Change, brought to you by the Shaw Family Foundation. Over the next few weeks, we'll be speaking with academics and industry leaders to understand how incentives work and the barriers they often pose to reform and innovation. In our last episode, we spoke with author and researcher Uri Ganesi about what incentives are and how they work. Today, in the second episode of the series, I'm excited to welcome back to the podcast Michael Horn and Jeff Salingo. Education advocates and hosts of the Future You podcast to talk about how incentives are structured in education and how we can change those incentives to better prepare students for the workforce. I want to start by talking about why school is the way it is. So, if as I understand it, public school has a minimum requirement of nine hundred hours a year and one hundred and eighty-five days. So, it's interesting; none of those are really tied to outcomes of kids but that is kind of the skeleton of the education system as we know it why why is it that way
0: i mean 100% but this goes back to carnegie foundation in 1906 or whatever the year was when they were actually trying to figure out how to pay pensions as i understand it right for higher education and figure out what's a college and then they had to backtrack and figure out what's a high school and how do we actually accredit the number of hours or what they thought was learning uh, Mm. to figure out, is this a high school that can send kids into colleges? And so never intended to be a system around learning or anchoring, but literally we've built entire systems now around this. And so the 185 days or 900 hours, it depends on the state right, where where you are, are all relics built around this. Because if you actually went back to 1850 or something like that, the average Detroit student Would go to 265 days of school or something like that Hmm. so these all became uniform measures just to try to create a seamless transfer between these two systems that you know you didn't know what was a high school or what was a college back then right in the
2: same way in higher ed right around the bachelor's degree being 120 credits uh you know harvard tried way back when to do a three-year degree and it didn't quite work, right? And so they decided to do a four-year degree so everyone else did one. But now we have 120 credits. And even though under the federal financial aid guidelines, you actually could qualify for federal financial aid with 12 credits a semester, right? Not 15 credits a semester, but they all you know equal 120 credits. Hmm. And even though an engineering major might actually have most of those credits within their major, where a history major might only be 50 credits, right? So it's, it's just we kind of come up with these constructs and we now think, oh, it has to be a four-year degree. It has to be 120 credits. And nobody could tell you why.
1: It's it's interesting because it seems like you now we have the structure and the structure is historic. And then there are the days and the hours that we have to fill. Yep. And so, and then the question is, okay, well, what do we fill them with? And we have require testing if you're a public school and you're receiving public funding. So we fill them with reading and math and science and history that's aligned to the test, which is maybe a good idea. Still doesn't feel like it's outcomes-based in terms of how we think about kids and their development. And
0: Yeah, I mean, this is the biggest thing I always tell people is that you wonder why we have schools the way they are, compliance-based and focused on inputs. Yeah exquisitely, down to the minute, an hour, we have requirements and we pay literally based on butts and seats. So we are measuring the wrong end of the student and we are financing around it. And so you wanna talk incentives, everything is built around that. And that's true in higher education as well. It's the same thing. We're looking at credit hours. Did you get enough credit hours? Not did you get learning or did you get a job or anything like that? We're not paying for any Mm. of those things. Mm. We're literally financing just the fulfillment of time, and then to your point, we backward map all these things and we try to fill it and we try to figure out what to put in the puzzle, if you will, but those are still fundamentally secondary considerations almost, because we start with this assumed structure of of time as opposed to learning.
1: Right,
2: Right, and that outcome in higher ed is we just have to get them to graduation. Yeah. doesn't matter whether (laughs) they learned anything, but we have to get them to graduation. I think about this often, because there was just this report out a couple of weeks ago there are now 40 million American adults who have some college credit but no degree. So we consider them failures, right? We consider them, well, they don't have the degree because they didn't finish, but they have all these credits. So they clearly learned something. right? They might actually know enough to get some sort of job with those credits, but because they're not neatly packaged in this time that we have of four years or two years or whatever, they're considered failures.
1: Right. It's interesting. So what do you think moves the needle on how we think about these things. Because it, it, parents are a piece of this story as well. They, they've, we've all bought into this structure. We've bought into K through 12 and then matriculation into higher ed. And in certain situations, parents are completely taken by surprise in 12th grade when they find out that their kid is nowhere near ready for higher ed. Do, is, there, is there a way to rethink this? Or are we stuck? Because re-engineering the whole thing would be too difficult.
0: Well, it's a timely question because the very people that put this in place, the Carnegie Foundation, yeah. are thinking of how do we rip this time-based element out and put assessments in instead huh. to measure progress. Right. And so they've teamed up with ETS, the Educational Testing Service, uh-huh. to try and create assessments that they would say are embedded in learning, are often simulations are seamless, like you wouldn't know you're doing an assessment or a test and that they're going to measure everything, presumably from knowledge to skills to, they say, like character dispositions and things of that nature. Hmm. TBD, I, I would say. But they're basically trying to say, like, how do we start tying dollars even to learning or progress maybe to learning that we can measure through assessments as, as you grow and make progress as opposed to time? and they feel, I think, responsible in some ways, right, is the foundation that put this architecture on it. So they feel like they're uniquely positioned somehow to maybe pull this out and redo it. A, remains to be seen, and B, we do have some experiments in the K-12 system, like New Hampshire, they have the Virtual Learning Academy Charter School, where you learn online, and instead of getting paid based on the number of minutes that you have learned, they get 10% of the funding for a given course as you show mastery over 10% of the material. Then you master the next 10% of the material and they get the funding for the next 10%. Meaning the they've... school
1: gets the funding. Exactly. Based on, based on the learning progress. The child's mastery of, a, or the student's mastery of a particular yeah, subject. Yeah, exactly.
0: And so then their incentive is to support the learner in actually learning the material that they've deemed important, which is right. a whole nother conversation.
1: Right. You
0: yeah, know, I, I wondered... Does it have to happen at the K-12 level first,
2: do you think, to have an impact in higher ed? I'm, I always try to figure out, could these happen independently, where we focus more on the outcomes and the learning than we focus on these input measures, whether that's enrollment or something else? I don't know.
0: Yeah. And I always think it'd be easier actually to do it at the higher ed level first, because you could tie it to employment outcomes much more easily, right? And so there's, we can have all the arguments in the world about you know the purpose of college. Social yeah. study, well, right. in K twelve, social right. studies, right? right. Like, okay. who's social studies? Who's history? Like, look at Florida right now, right? You could have all those arguments in the world. It feels more tangible to me at higher ed to say we're preparing you for a job in software engineering or, right. or data analytics or whatever. And so we pull the competencies and skills directly from those things, and we teach those.
2: Well, we're starting to see this, I think, now. So where is this going to lead in in higher ed? I think the employers are going to push it on one end. So we're seeing a lot of employers now drop degree requirements, which has colleges kind of shaking in their boots a little bit. We also have employers moving toward more skill-based hiring. I don't know how widespread that is, but it is now because of the tight labor market. Colleges are being asked by parents, and I'm starting to see this, like, Not only will my, you know, son or daughter will they get a degree, how much is it gonna cost me? But what are they gonna do when they get out of here? Or what are they gonna do while they're here too? Like what are they gonna learn? Right. So this is we've seen in higher ed now this movement towards much more experiential learning more focus on internships and co-ops and undergraduate research project-based learning and things like that. But, you know, this this recent report that I worked on with uh, the Burning Glass Institute really looked at the value of the bachelor's degree and the thing that we don't talk often enough about is that outcome, which is the skill. Like what are the skills that you actually learn? And I think employers used to think all these skills were embedded in the degree. Mm-hmm. As long as you got the degree, you were fine. And right. I think increasingly over the last couple of decades when they were hiring and they weren't totally pleased with what they were getting they started to say skills are more important
1: can i push on that for a second yeah. though because first to go back to your point about parents is that just is that just overparenting for parents to wonder so deeply about what their child is going to get out of a college degree and here's why i asked that question I, I would have i would have just nodded my head and gone along except for that, I was listening like a week, a week and a half ago, but I was listening to a podcast where Barry Weiss was interviewing Sam Altman, mm-hmm. head of OpenAI, and she asked him at one point, what should kids study in college? He said, you should study whatever you want. You should study whatever gives you pleasure and you know, you, because that's gonna be the thing that you really would deeply pursue. It's more about knowledge attainment and you know, given how fast the world will move from this point forward, given what we're creating, you know, what What exactly are we preparing kids for, if not, like, total flexibility and, like, knowing how to sit in a space where at least they can be eternally happy? Right. <laughs> Maybe we solve the social-emotional health problem. Yeah, I don't know if it's too. an
2: either-or. Okay. Um, you know, and we heard this uh, recently when we were at Marymount University for our podcast, and it was talking about the role of AI and what are you, you know, if AI is going to eat jobs or eat parts of jobs, what or, should you Or learn? amplify or the am-
1: effects of a human. Right. So yeah.
2: r- you, h- what are those human skills that you need to have, yeah. which you can learn in college, but are there also specific, whether they're tech skills or other sort of skills that you need to have to get that first job? Right? Yeah. The way I've always thought about this is that you want to learn some sort of tactical skill that, yes may be outdated in five or six years mm. but that skill could actually help you get that first job after college yeah. and then you want those foundational skills that are going to be great for the rest of your life right you know knowing how to think and write and you know argue and and you know stuff like that right yeah. so I think part of the problem now is that we've kind of gone into this binary way of thinking around okay go to college just learn something and then you see all these students who get out and are struggling to find jobs because they don't really have any real skills yeah. or go to job to learn real skills. And those are the jobs that in five
0: years might be outdated.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: I mean, it's interesting though, where you're also going, I think it requires some nuance in who we're talking about. So I would agree. I think we've way over indexed on STEM fields at the expense of humanities and things like that. And you think about what's going to get commoditized over the next few years actually, I think the value is going to go back to humanities and being able to have a sense of history and ethics and things like that, and apply it with the AI, I think, is going to be far more valuable and interesting and differentiated, if you will, from totally. what the technology is doing. Yeah. So I think we've way over-indexed on that. By the same token, if you're thinking about someone who's not at a school that Sam may have uh, gone yeah. to, <laughs> um, uh, or, or you know, or like you think about like, gee, if you can learn some skill in being a Salesforce administrator or something yeah. like that. That actually is probably gonna have some enduring quality to it for several years of being able to manipulate and set up a a system and so forth and permissions. Now, I I don't know if it's Salesforce per se, but like some of those might get you that entry-level job that then teaches you how to work in the working world and things of that nature. And then you realize, oh, I need to get more skills to continue to climb the ladder and the systems change. And I think this points to the bigger thing, which is We hope out of the K-12 system and higher ed system that we're teaching people how they learn and how to learn so that they can keep finding the answers. And it might not always be through a formal institution.
1: Yeah. Well, okay. I'm glad you brought us back there because that's a really good point. If we think about it in another direction, you know, there's lots of places that kids go to school today that are completely stymied, that are stuck in a very old paradigm. But not only that, they're not receiving an education that's anything like the people who end up at schools like. Sam Altman did. And so, you know, let's go back to those kinds of situations. And, you know, obviously the bureaucracy and the the systems are a problem there. There's also a lot of problems with the behavior within the system and what teachers are incentivized to do, what principals are, what superintendents are. It gets very myopic. I think mm-hmm. I was trying to think through earlier today with Russ, what are superintendents incentivized for? It feels like attendance and graduation are the only things you read about.
0: Well, and this goes to your opening and, and, point. And,
1: and, and, and making sure nothing gets too messy.
0: And the only other one I would add is not doing the thing that your neighbor superintendent did because you're not gonna <laughs> get the political credit for it and you want political credit, you right. have to do something novel, even if it's not effective, right? Right. right. Which is crazy, these right. political incentives in the system. But I think you know the bigger point of like attendance and graduation, yeah. you think about what that incentivizes, okay, I can solve the graduation problem tomorrow. I just hit print for every single student. 100%. That's not hard.
1: Sign away. Sign
0: away, right? Yeah. And so you look at like things like online credit recovery, which I've historically argued is a great place to pioneer some innovation and do some things. Wait, what do you mean? So student fails a course. They don't have the ability to make it up in time to get to graduation. Uh, what a lot of districts over the last 15 years have done is introduce online credit recovery programs, huh. right? So you can learn it online Accelerate through the stuff you already know, spend time on the stuff that you failed, and yeah. then you get the credit and you keep going. Sounds great in theory. Mm. It's an opportunity for mastery-based learning, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. In reality, the incentive is just to get them the, de- the degree. So we just want to get through, right? And so in reality, we pick the lowest cost, doesn't matter the quality of the program. Right. We just want to get you through. It's the throughput problem. It's not a learning problem. Right. And so graduation rates at all these districts have gone up. Totally. So we. I mean, it's amazing. Right, like, but the, but the learning, but the learning has not.
1: Yeah. Yes. Well, so so can we drill into that for a second? Because I think we're all proponents of mastery-based learning. But what is that? And it can that can can we build a new set of incentives around mastery of information and knowledge versus time, which is really how we incentivize most things today.
0: I mean, this is the question that Carnegie, right, and, and ETS are trying to tackle fundamentally yeah. is, can you do those things? And I mean, I think New Hampshire is a very interesting example with mm-hmm. their Virtual Learning Academy Charter School. Can you scale it? I don't know. Well, Sal Khan, down, that's all of his stuff That's work, all right? his stuff too, yeah. right? I mean, you and, and so here, here's an interesting example. You look back at the full-time virtual schools when they got their start around 2000, 2001 in K-12 systems. Right. And... Virtual schools on full-time online, like the antithesis of sitting in a seat and minutes and yeah. hours and days and so forth, right? Clearly the unit of measure should be progress through the learning. Yeah. And yet, because of the way states are set up, they made all these virtual school companies create intricate IT systems to try to count hours to backward map onto the Carnegie units.
1: That's amazing?
0: And in effect, you got virtual schools that are extremely similar to the existing system that we get, and maybe worse for students that don't have, you know, families around them to support them, right, right, as they're learning by themselves. Can you imagine if a state from scratch starts with a full-time virtual school and said, okay, we're just focused on the mastery of learning, like we want to see growth toward proficiency or mastery of a certain baseline set of things, and then Go explore, like have fun yeah. after you've done that. What would that look like? Well, and, and also, and how set it I mean, up? I
1: think it also goes to like, what is the role of education? Because there, there's a piece of, I mean, our expectation when kids are in school is that we have a strong expectation that at least from the outside looking in, we're taking care of their bodies as well as their minds, their social o- emotional health that, you know, for some parents would talk about how there's an element of, Babysitting service. Well, I mean, like it's I think that's a for, big part of it for right? some parents. But anyway, but, but yeah. right,
2: if you go to mastery based learning, yeah. though, like some of these kids could be
0: out like a lot sooner. And may, do parents necessarily want, want that? Right. I think that's a big question. And so, how do you start to braid funding? Right. You really right, have to think that? about
1: truly what is education? I think mean that's totally right. And, yeah. and
0: frankly, like, what would it look like to have schools open from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. Right. and yeah. year round? Right. I mean, like, some of the most interesting micro schools are literally. Whatever the, I don't know how many days there are in a year that are not weekends and right. Christmas and New Year's, <laughs> right. but they're they're right. that right? right, and so exactly. and they're fully open and there's much more flexibility. Yeah, there's exactly. some check-in times where we all come together as a community. I think that's important as well. Totally. And then we sort of create a lot more flexibility to meet family schedules and so forth to account for everything from the babysitting, keeping my kids safe, maybe a better way totally. to say it, yep. and which is a big question for schools right now, obviously, given right. the news cycle. And right. and then secondly, that they're learning productively. And, you know, they don't always have to be learning in school. Like, how do we give credit for the learning that occurs in their after-school, you know, organizations? Their sports teams, their tutoring, their music, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Or frankly, you know, I telling someone this this morning, like, one of my kids was sick the other day yeah. from school. She couldn't go. We got to listen to Sal Khan's TED Talk about Khanmigo. Finally, oh. I knew I was supposed to listen, oh, to, it to, listen to it, and I hadn't. I hadn't listened to it because okay. I don't love watching video, and yeah, yeah. I, I love it in a podcast, but yeah. I don't love the video. Yeah. But with her there, you know, we sat there and yeah. watched it. And then uh, I was telling Jeff this, and then I set her up on Khanmigo because oh. Sal had given me an account. Yeah. And she lo- was coding by the end of the day. She's That's in second grade. Crazy. It was so cool. It's amazing. It was awesome.
1: We all need a Khanmigo. Yeah, Diego. we all need
0: a friend like that. Yeah,
1: we do. It's incredible.
2: Well, and I think the incentives, though, going back to the incentives yeah. on this, at least on higher ed, Michael and I were talking before we got on the air today about the idea of a three-year degree. And there's pushback in higher ed against that because some schools see it as they're going forgo- to they're forego a quarter of their yeah, revenue, the revenue as a yeah. result, right? Yeah. And that's very important to them. And they can't really rethink their systems as a result. So a lot of it is driven by – the financial systems mm-hmm. rather than the learning systems.
1: Totally. And and it, and it is myopic thinking, right? Because with the introduction of ChatGPT, wouldn't I, I mean, what percentage of adults wouldn't mind like going back to their alma mater and saying, hey, I need to do a quick like whatever, no. six month, six week seminar totally. on this. And I mean, there are other ways to generate revenue but you just have to think outside of the structures.
0: Well, and here's the other thing again, right? Which is, I think the real big breakthroughs on AI and education are going to be when organizations create new universities and systems from de yeah. novo right like yeah. they're yeah. we're going to see ai used in a sustaining innovation way in a bunch of point solutions it'll be important and helpful and i expect a bunch of institutions are going to spin up some you know totally new things from whole cloth because you can now create content curriculum much cheaper yeah. much more interactive through the ai and learn much more rapidly new emerging fields where maybe before, before it was hard to find faculty to, to you know to staff it and so forth. Yeah. It's gonna get really interesting. And I think you could do a whole bunch of experiments on this incentives question to try to figure out the right balance between right. some of the things that you're getting at.
1: I think so. I, I think I wanna go back to the power of community. You were talking about community. And um, as I was preparing for this, I was thinking about communal efforts that really move the needle in education. And the th- the one that came to me most quickly was the women's movement and the result of that, right, which has been decades, but the result of that is there are now more, more girls yep. than boys enrolled in universities. I think girls have a higher GPA or a higher propensity to and there's all kinds of arguments as to why that is and what that, you know, how in some ways we've played a net zero game and that's to the detriment of boys. Of but that, is, that was a powerful community of both men and women and money that leaned in aggressively in order to make change kind of comprehensively and it impacted education. It impacted this thing that we're saying is very impenetrable and why, one, is that the right way to think about it? And two, why haven't other big issues like equity been solved in that sort of way? Um mainly
2: because i think that there was a there's not a, a a formal constituency around a lot of these things like even among parents i think there's this divide right now or there's this tension between we want something different out of education but there's also this tradition that they have to follow. I see this kind of in the college-going piece. You know, I, I do a lot around admissions. And people want something different for their kids. They want their kids to, you know, to study and, and do well. They want to have a less expensive options. They always ask about different options. But at the end of the day, there's that strong pull back. To, you know, the top 10, top 20, top 30 schools, right. uh, which are not going to be different, right? And so I do, just don't think there is a, a strong constituency thinking of the women's movement yeah. that can really push us in one certain direction. At least I don't think there
0: is. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I, and I guess I'd add, when you think about the women's movement, it was also, I mean, it's a very employer-led change, mm. right? In terms of women in the workforce and right. then what that changes for the pathways that are open in education for women and so forth. And it didn't, at any one point in time, ask men to take a step back. It said, we're pushing women forward. Right. And I think that's an important framing. Yeah. Because even though there's been a zero-sum, I take your <laughs> yeah. point on yeah, that yeah. A- effect of it. My, right, uh, men didn't necessarily know that at that time. They didn't know that, which maybe says something larger <laughs> yeah. about, about men. But, uh, <laughs> but I think the point is, some of these other movements are like very explicitly... I win you lose yeah. and I yeah. I always do I always throw my mother on under the bus and these things right but like
1: your poor mother my poor I mother, hope my son is not listening no nah, 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 <laughs> but it's it's out of love um <laughs> right, right.
0: but she, you know she would call me up in Montgomery County where where Jeff lives and say can you believe they're doing this or that to ruin the schools now and I'd be yeah. like oh gee I thought this or that was a good idea uh-huh. but you put yeah. yourself in their her position and you're like you're literally taking something away yeah. from my kid, my school, whatever it might be, right. right? And I just think that sort of framing, particularly when it's at the power structures and where the wealth is, yeah, it's not gonna work. And so yeah. that's the other thing the women's movement has is goes across income level.
1: Exactly. Th- this is my point. But it surprises me that that is the only place that re- it, that I could think of that really has made a significant change that we can point to and measure yeah. in education over yeah. this entire period of Well, and of it's time. not
0: structural also in the sense of yeah. like it, it continued the structures and just stopped closing the doors. Yeah,
1: right. 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 Along the way. Right, exactly. So what makes me wonder more about is – politics hmm. because politics and education seem to be like inextricable yep. yeah they're they're divided. well they're it's divisive. the degree
2: well especially in higher ed and now it's yeah. it's kind of the degree divide
1: okay talk about we're that. seeing that
2: right we're seeing essentially the they kind of almost flipped right the republican party has now become the party of the working class yep. mostly without degrees yeah and the democrats have become the party of the college the elitist. educated yeah. and the elitist right yeah. Which is exactly kind of very different than it was fifty years ago, yeah. uh, for example. And I think that there is this—the tension is around that, right? The tension is like, you know, we see this in debt relief, you know, which is a very democratic-led effort, and and Republicans are saying, for various reasons, why they don't believe in it. But a lot of it is, well, our voters and and those voters are saying this too. We have not benefited from higher education, right. so why should we pay, right. you know, the debt of, of of people off, right? So I think college. college. College has become this very big dividing line. And because we are also segregating where we live by politics often, Mm -hmm. you see this, especially we just did an episode of our podcast about rural education. And and there's this this skepticism, very deep skepticism in rural areas of higher education. Because again, most of those voters don't have a college degree.
1: Like if you look at the budgets of every city, every town, every place that has public education at, at K through 12 it's the biggest line item in their budgets it should be the thing that is like has a lot of focus right and
2: brings people together
1: brings people to together it should like there should be we should be unified in outcomes and and what we want out of it and instead you hear a lot more discussion about education at kind of the macro level where, is it just because at the end of the day in cities and in, in towns across america we're more worried about Potholes and Rats or like why isn't it? it? Because, or like, you know, it's a passion projects like, you know, which books kids can't read well, anymore. I, but, but is
2: that is that until recently, education I think for most people seemed like a black box, right? You didn't quite know what was happening in those schools. Oh, really? But increasingly okay. now you do. Um, and I heard. think now people are starting to ask questions about the curriculum, the mm. books people are reading, the books that are in the library, you know, what's what what are they teaching? And I think a lot of that is because of the pandemic, right? Students were at home, parents were seeing what they were being taught, and now suddenly that black box was open to you. Huh. I mean, people said, well, wait a second, I don't want my kid to learn that or that. But meanwhile, none of us are experts in any of this stuff, but yet we are you know, going right. to school board meetings now suddenly as experts, <laughs> yeah. or our school boards are now suddenly experts. I think the pandemic did change that. Uh, I'm not as much of an expert on K through 12 as Michael is, but it seems to me, and just reading the tea leaves, mm-hmm. that's kind of what happened. And so. For a while, it was this black box, and now we see inside of it, and now we want to start you know, pulling these different levers to do th- to things differently. But
1: doesn't it trickle up to higher ed because kids who were in those systems then matriculate yep. into higher education, and they bring those same kind of can passions share, with can them? Can
2: you share the an- an- anonymized story yeah. about the- uh... fascinating about learning loss. So yeah, yeah. I was speaking to the head of a math department at a very, very well-regarded STEM school, who is telling me that basically before COVID, they had like 23 kids in pre-calculus. They now have a couple hundred kids in pre-calculus just over the last couple of years. So the enrollment has shot up in terms of pre-calc because these students have lost a lot in terms of math education during the COVID. But not only that, the average grade in pre-calculus in the first test was 93. It's now something like 73 in that pre-calculus class. And as this math professor told me, at this place, you know, 85, 90% of the majors require advanced math. And so if we're seeing this at the very beginning of their college careers, what does that mean? Because they can't really hide out yeah. in, in a major that doesn't require advanced math. So either they're going to move to one of those few majors they're going to drop out or i said do you just make things a little bit easier yeah. to get these kids through talking yeah. about pushing kids through yeah. right so it's 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 a question that i don't think colleges have grappled with because you talk about you know they are downstream yeah and and we talk about this often about learning loss during the pandemic right you know, our, you know my, I have a 13 and 11 year old at home, right? They're not going to be through college until the early 2030s. Yeah. They were impacted by COVID, but nobody in higher ed is thinking that way. They think when they think learning loss right. in COVID, they think the next couple of years. Right? They're not thinking five, 10 years out. And somehow they think that K twelve is
1: going to magically
0: going to get good over the next ten years yeah, snap and, and back. fix, yes. f- fix yeah. that. right? Yeah, with yeah, all that money is, that they're about to run out of, right? Which they're about to run right. out, they're out they're of running, 190 right. billion, about to fade away. We'll yeah. talk
1: about that. That was one of the next things I wanted to talk about. Was you know we there was you you guys both are you know steeped in knowledge about No Child Left Behind. And I, in this office, I heard some people grumbling about, haven't we learned any lessons from the last time we gave out billions of dollars to the public education system? Did we learn any lessons? Why weren't there more requirements attached to the money? Is it being well spent? Will it be well spent? Will we see outcomes? Why? Why did we do it this way?
0: I think we did it this way because it was just emergency and people were just rushing to
1: we didn't even define the emergency that we
0: didn't e- we didn't define anything like yeah. and, and so i i actually don't think no child left behind is analogous because yeah.
1: that had a th-
0: goal th- that had a goal yeah
1: okay
0: right like i yeah. mean it was an imp- completely impractical pie in the sky goal mm-hmm. of, of 100% proficiency by 2014 or whatever it was yeah. but th- there was no goal here like no. it, all interpretation of how do you need to use the money Yeah. right goes back to incentives. If we had very clear incentives around the outcomes that we want, right. then I'm all for that. Right. I'm all for taking strings off and freeing up inputs. That That's my governing philosophy totally. is, is focus on the outcomes, let the people on the ground figure out the right way to use the resources. Yeah. But we didn't have that. We had no. the opposite of that. And frankly, over the last, let's call it 13 to 14 years, we've pulled back actually all that outcome focus from No Child Left Behind, and I know that the academics are still debating this, but for a very large install base, we actually had started moving proficiency scores during the No Child Left Behind era, and I have my quibbles on it, but like they were all getting better, right? And then we have retreated systematically over the last thirteen years, really. Well, Surprising in, the, in terms
1: of slid. equity, too, we were closing gaps.
0: We were closing gaps,
1: yeah. So we actually it was having some it was sort having of it was
0: having an effect. We can quibble, yeah. like. I would love to have a 2.0 system that's looking at growth of each student right. and and yada yada. Right. But like, at a baseline, I think it moved the needle. Actually, on yeah. a very hard system to to move. Just to go back to the other piece about what are parents demanding against this, I do think that there's some positives against this, though. Science of reading, right, becoming a major deal, mm-hmm. like that. That is completely a parent-driven and Emily Hanford movement, yeah, okay, right? Um, right. And so I think there's some real positives that come out of this. And then I guess the second one I would say is the education savings account, ESA, right? Movement now in 12 states, uh, which is wild when you think about where school choice was even five years ago right? with all the charters on, I mean, Massachusetts being the poster child for sort of putting charters on the back foot. right? Uh, All of a sudden it's a very different landscape. And so now there's a different kind of accountability on some of these things where parents can just Opt out, and, and the day we're recording this, 74 just came out with this huge spread about that the uh, enrollment declines in big cities have mm-hmm. continued. Yeah. And it's just, I mean, they're Where's down Where's everyone going? One, we don't fully know. No. No. Yeah. Which is two, scary. Yeah, which is crazy, yeah. right? It's a, And two, I mean, a lot of people say these micro schools and yeah. pods and so forth, you know, are over 2 million students now. Yeah. That's, I, if you had told someone me included 5 years ago that we would have had those numbers i would have laughed yeah this is something that we need to be thinking about and 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 working with
1: how do you do it though so it's disruptive as opposed to it gets overturned and and you know we we try to brush them back into the back into the system, system. system. Yeah, go back exactly. into your <laughs> box yeah <laughs> exactly it's a great
0: question i i think what's fundamentally different about the education savings account piece is that it's empowering not just families that don't historically vote, but also a lot of families that do. Yeah. And so I think it's going to bring more of them to the table. Yeah. Secondly, I actually think it's important that it's not a voucher that it can only be spent on a school yeah. and that it can be spent on a wide range of educational options to, mm-hmm. to help your child. So you can still go to the public school, but you're going to get tutoring on top or things of that nature. I think that unbundled nature of it is actually an important feature of it. But we'll see. That's There's going to be some pushback though, because people are going to spend it on trampoline parks and things like that so which we'll they see have. which they have. <laughs> yeah. So we're going, to, we're going to read headlines on that.
1: Absolutely. But Jeff, do you think that in any way has ESSER funding impacted higher ed? Okay. I, I definitely
0: think that
2: they it papered over a lot of problems okay. that were facing higher education, you know pre. Before the pandemic,
1: so for example,
2: um, so I think that many institutions were running uh, deficits mm-hmm. um, uh, before the pandemic because we've been losing students in higher ed. I mean, one of the undertold stories is that higher ed enrollment in the U.S. peaked in 2011, 2012, yeah, and it's been dropping ever since. And
1: this isn't because there are less.
2: No, it's not because there are fewer students yeah. in uh, you know in the pipeline yeah. to higher education. In fact, we've been essentially stuck and dropping a little bit in our college going rate. So college going rate three months after high school is you know, was at some point like 67% might have been highest mark. Then we went down to 65. We're now at like 61% or something like that. Mm -hmm. Right. So, you know, and that each percentage point represents a lot of students, obviously. And so, yes, we've been been losing students a little bit each year. And I think that was just undercovered for the most part. And then we had this huge drop off of 1.3 million during the pandemic. But most schools didn't really worry that much because they were getting all this federal funding Mm -hmm. uh, during the pandemic, all of which has actually run out even before the K through 12 money yeah. uh, has run out. And so now you're starting to see real issues because they're now have lost not only the money but the students as well.
1: So on a macro level though, is that commensurate with what's happening in other first world nations or are we, is it disproportionate? Are we as a country losing more kids in higher ed?
2: I believe we are losing more kids in higher ed. I yeah. mean, there is this global downturn in terms of you know young adults in in many countries, yeah. even in fast-growing countries. Right, we're seeing what's happening in China now. But right. we definitely are over-indexed when it comes to young adults. Not only, by the way, not in education, mm-hmm. but also not in the workforce. Hmm. That's what worries me. Right? You are they asked her earlier.
1: First, or are they in doing? Gig stuff, and they're doing stuff that we haven't done that a we good haven't job captured. Yeah, we're, perhaps. Yeah, I, don't, I know. don't
0: know. It's a good question because the labor participation rate, right, yeah. is significantly lower. So low. Yeah. yeah than any time since the yeah. what sixty or even before that, right? right?
2: I mean, uh, you know, there was this theory you had asked about what happens to all these kids who have dropped out of urban schools, yeah. and you know, theories that I've heard is that they're working, right? But we don't yeah. know that, right? right? We don't have good data systems. Again, this goes back to tradition right. on how we've collected data on on students and workers over the years.
0: And so we just don't know that. It's one of the things, I I can't remember which one of your books, but one of your books, Jeff, Uh, you'll you'll know which one off the top of your head. You talked about essentially that the teen labor force participation rate was the lowest it's ever been basically in our nation's nation's history, history. right? Uh, right. Uh, Some years ago. And there's a question, has that changed over the last couple of years. And, and it, I
2: think it really did, right? Because we saw teen employment go up during the pandemic. You know, When uh, the labor market has tightened, yeah. teens now become much more attractive right. uh, job candidates uh, as a result. Yeah. I don't think that's as evenly distributed among income levels, mm-hmm. though. I still think that we're not seeing the levels of what I would call higher income family teens Going into the workforce, they're still trying to burnish their, you know, resume for college, right? Right. So we don't see that. And to be honest with you, I think sometimes those are the kids that have to work more. That should right. That should work right to get real. Going back to the skills argument, to get real
0: tactical skills. So it's interesting in terms of the other countries. The other thing, right, is that we don't have a system of apprenticeships in Mm -hmm. this country, Mm -hmm. right? We're we're, it's come up some. I think we're like at a half million or something like that apprenticeships, Mm -hmm. but that's like as a percentage. Tiny tiny compared to-
1: Is that meaning apprenticeships for higher ed students and K through 12 students or-
0: Just period. Period.
1: Period. It's like
2: the registered internships, which are still kind of mostly in the trades. We don't see apprenticeships as a pathway- from K through 12 mm-hmm. to a job, mm-hmm. which is really where I think we need to go. Like, mm-hmm. I, 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 as Michael know, a couple months ago, I was in Switzerland and saw a little bit of their system, which I think is more analogous to what we should have in the US rather than Germany. We talk a lot about Germany, but I think they have, they have different tracking systems in K through 12, they have different that we'd unions. be uncomfortable with, Yeah, it's just yeah. very different. Yeah. Where, <laughs> where I think in Switzerland, um, you're also having apprenticeships around accounting, right. around, we, we send kids to be social media managers and to go to college, mm-hmm. right? Like, like, Would't mm-hmm. that be a better apprenticeship mm-hmm. in some ways and mm-hmm. then get you know education on the side? Mm-hmm. And again, I think we argue this in a binary way. We say, why not have an apprenticeship plus education right right Rather than say apprenticeship or education
1: right? I think that's right. I wonder if you know some of that happens just naturally as you're you know bringing in a new class of you know, folks that they, they end up being mentored because they have to be managed, because they have to learn kind of what's happening in a particular institution and, you know, kind of start to conform to that institution, even though it's not specified in a particular way. And and because I, you know, I know one of the things that folks are talking about in industry is as everyone goes back to work in person, they're finding that one of the biggest things they lost was that period of, Internship apprenticeship that happens as you bring in a new group of individuals. and because everyone' was working at their homes, they weren't sitting next to their boss learning mm-hmm. from their boss. you know there weren't the kinds of check-ins that you do with one another that are just kind of a part of the day. And so i don't I don't know how you solve for that, but you're then saying specifically, Maybe part of education needs to look more like an apprenticeship and how to be. Or some sort
2: of work, um, some sort of work that so that students come into college. They pick a major because it's something that's familiar to them, something they hear, right. something that they're surrounded by, which, by the way, is also a huge economic divide, right? Because right. you could be growing up in an area where you're only going to come in contact with you know certain industries, for right. example. Right. Um, you get to college. You have to pick a major. You don't even know what it really means to pick a major. You're not really going to get much work experience unless you go out and intern and things like that. And then you're expected to graduate uh, you know, in the spring of your senior year. And suddenly now you see all these job ads. And they kind of seem like a foreign language to you because you have not been really exposed to a lot of that stuff.
1: It's the same problem as reading, yeah. right? When kids are learning to read, you haven't been exposed to certain topics and therefore it's harder to read about them. Read about them, right?
0: Because knowledge, it turns out, matters actually, familiarity. But it's it's also interesting just hearing you say that. It occurs to me that a lot of the people focused on this problem, how unfamiliar we are with the problem. And I say that just, just to reflect back to the beginning of the conversation, I went to Yale, right? Mm -hmm. The courses that we take map back to credit hours, Mm -hmm. but we don't ever actually look at a credit hour. I don't actually know how how much of a credit hour the classes I took at Yale were. I could figure it out if I calculated it. But one. Two, gen ed is something that we talk a lot about and then major and restrictions and things like that. Literally just not a conversation, right, at Yale. Like I wasn't even aware of Hmm. these parts of the higher ed system. And I, I guess I say that because a lot of the policy makers went to these rarefied set uh, of highly rejective, we'll call yeah. it, colleges, right? And so they're just actually unfamiliar with how a lot of the system works. My, my wife was listening to another podcast recently with, it's a, 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 with a bunch of actors. I'm, yeah. I'm gonna out myself, so I don't list. know which one it is. Yes, it's smartless, yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> Did you listen to it? Are you kidding? I, so I Jason Bateman, guys. right, was, yeah. and, and he didn't go to college. Yes, And he was asking, you probably know, someone who went to UPenn, so what's college like? My understanding is you start with a bunch of <laughs> gen ed requirements and then you pick your major. And she was like, "No, it's nothing like that." <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, "Oh." And you could hear, the, but, but and he my really wife does was like,
1: want to know. Yeah, what and, happens and, in and that so my wife box. was
0: like, "It's fascinating, yeah. like his view of it." And I was like, "Well, he's actually probably closer to right yeah. than she is yes. for the majority yes. of students." And yes. we just have, like, and so an apprenticeship, for example, you know, we're talking about what that might look like. Right. These are totally. Sort of outside of the realm of people who are thinking or or, or making policy about these sorts of things as right. well.
1: Right. Yeah, it makes me wonder. And you know, whatever this will be a you know hard stop for a second when I ask this question because it's it's very big and loaded. But I. Continuously hear people talking about preparing kids for a 21st century, you know, with a 21st century education, and we're like, we're in it now. We're well into it, and so I wonder if <laughs> we should just like, almost
2: a quarter of the way right? through,
1: right? <laughs> like, should, should this be a full? Should we so- figure that? Stop? Should
2: we figure that out by now? Yeah,
1: or just should we just, <laughs> just call stop. it like let's full stop on 21st century education? Set reset all incentives, all funding, you know, all requirements around a 22nd century oh, education.
0: I would love to see us start building bridges to that by creating autonomous areas where we could have full regulatory freedom and yeah. can try out some different things.
1: What do you think? But you can have?
0: you do that at scale? I, I don't think you can do it on the existing system, right? I, right? I just wrote this piece for Forbes where I was saying, like, when someone ever comes up to me at a conference and they're yeah. like, but I really want system transformation, and right? I, I get why they tell me that yeah. because, like, I'm the transformation guy, not the reform guy, right? right? But. <laughs> Systems don't fundamentally change their stripes. They get replaced by new systems. And so... In all cases. In all cases. I mean,
1: that's what venture investing is all about. That's what entrepreneurship is all about, is you disintermediate what used to be when it gets too big. And then we
0: look at it and we're like, oh, it's a new system. Yes. (laughs) Because it grew up from the ground up. And so I think that's the point you're making, Jeff, right? Which is like, I don't think we can just pull out all the rules and and unwind all the processes and cultures and so forth in the existing system but mm. i think we do need to start up like creating more of these autonomous areas mm-hmm. where we have the freedom to rethink these things mm-hmm. and Start moving more and more students and families and educators into these new experiences. And then, and
2: how do we, Michael? The thing I'm also interested in is because geogra- uh, education and geography are closely aligned. You know, even in higher ed, uh, most people are surprised when I tell them that most students go to college within 50 miles of their home, right? So there is this geography of education, and huh. that's even very true, of course, in K through 12. And I always think, you know, we talk often about where we grew up, and I, you know, Michael grew up where I now live, and but I, you know, I grew up in north. Eastern Pennsylvania, where there were not a lot of education choices, right? right? So I'm thinking, if you don't have system change, if you don't have it at scale, if you don't have it at a statewide level, do you risk, you know, what happens to people where I grew up? Like, I wouldn't have those choices. I'm I'm always amazed at the choices my kids had compared to what I had as a kid. Mm. Because those kids, by the way, still have those choices that I had, you know, a long time ago.
0: I think it goes to the other thing we need to be doing in parallel, which is continuing to push on the existing system. It's mm-hmm. not that you give up on it, but one of the biggest things that American Student Assistance does a lot of work in this in this space, ASA, around uh, intentional exposure and exploration of careers starting yeah. in middle school. And the reason they picked middle school is because you haven't become so peer-influenced that you're not willing to think about things outside of your zone. Right. And it's not so close to college that the pressure, right, to to sort of lock down is there. But frankly, like the best example of this is at Cajon Union Valley School District in California. They started an elementary school. They've built an entire curriculum of 50-some-odd career explorations where you're not just exploring the career, what it's like to be at a day in the life, how much money you make, Mm because that's an important data point. Mm -hmm. Some of these kids are shocked, right, like you can make more than... $45,000 $45,000 in Dunkin' Donuts, right? Because right. we're in Massachusetts. Right. Um, and then intentional connection to people in those careers, yeah. just to be, build those weak ties social capital yeah. and the sense of like, oh, I, I could go do that. I see myself in that. Yeah. And we don't, places are starting to move in that direction. Mm-hmm. But to me, much more intentional exploration, uh, and, and there's stats about this too, like people who've seriously looked at three or more career choices or something like that before they're... Th- through the first two years or something like yeah. that of college, mm. like are way more successful in graduating and in placement into into careers that they actually make upward mobility in. Interesting. And,
2: and I like this exposure at an early age. You know, I have uh, I have a thirteen year old at home, and it's interesting now. Just in the last year, she started to ask a lot more about majors and jobs and how do you get a job yeah. and what do you what do you decide to do. Right. right. So it's very interesting at this point. And, and one of my favorite podcasts to listen to them in the car is like How I Built This. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because the thing I love about those stories around entrepreneurship and the founding of companies and things like that is that you know people don't pursue this straight path. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of detours. There's a lot of failure. Right. These the things majority that of never those folks about.
1: did not go to college. If you if you like if you sit and like calculate which wh- right. what percentage of the I mean the majority of the folks oh, that he interviews right. is, yeah, yeah it's really interesting I mean those folks for the most part are very right. self-made. Yes. Yeah.
2: But they did not take this linear path. Totally. And I think that's that's what I'm trying to, you know, my kids think, okay, well, I, I'm in seventh grade now, then I go to eighth grade, then I go to college, then yeah. I get a job. Tr- like, to, we have just taught them that there's just like this single pathway yeah. forward. And, and I think that's the thing that I'm trying to get them to understand is that there's many different ways – you, know, you kind of swirl around and right. kind of figure out what you want to do.
1: Well, that is really the humanity of it, right? Is that and it speaks to why mastery-based education would be the right way to go, right? because in that in mastering things, you, the things that you master quickly, you're probably more passionate about. Yeah. Yeah. And so you you know you can start to learn more things about you learn yourself. About yourself. Yeah. yeah, as you're going through it. So it's interesting to me that Carnegie, who got us all into like <laughs> into this, <laughs> is actually looking to reverse it. And and I I want to push on what you're saying, Michael, about innovation will happen in pockets and should like if if we if we just did a thought exercise for a second, if ESSER funding had been coming from the government, saying very specifically this can only be spent on innovation in your district, but go hog wild with it, and maybe put the caveat that. All learning in your innovation must be mastery-based, and we want to understand what your goals and objectives were for, for where where you spent it on, you know so child-centered, like yeah. what, what were the, I just, would we have come out with something different and better from that funding?
0: It's a good question, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if we have the infrastructure right to support the mastery-based learning at the moment, either is the question, I, yeah. I'd love.
1: Wouldn't it force us to get there Maybe it would have quick, forced right? us,
0: and maybe that would be the Im- most important thing that came out of it. Yeah. Um, I mean, you look at places that do it well, like Western Governors University and higher yeah. ed, right? They've built this incredible infrastructure of a separate set of faculty who is grading assessments, and you look at K-12 and like, where could that be? The only answer I can convincingly come up with right now is like Khan Academy for, yeah. through Schoolhouse yeah. or maybe like Numeridian Assessments or mm-hmm. some of these like newer things that are coming up.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Would that have caused us to scale those things? Maybe that that could have been yeah. great.
1: Well, I just wonder. I mean, I think it takes a whole universal effort, but you know, if you can give parents next generation parents, existing parents, something to get behind yeah. and lobby for as opposed to being where, against something. Right, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> being against something yeah. or where's my kid going to end? Like, what do they need to take in order to end up somewhere? You know, like... I, I it's think, a
0: great point and could you give them... Because I think the other piece that I'm still noodling over your women question why is that <laughs> the only place where I'm still... Like, right? it's so interesting. Yeah. And I think one of the other things is like, parents aren't generally advocating for something that they've never seen before. 100%. So how do you give them more things that they can, can get comfortable right. and see right. and be like, "Oh my gosh, like I want like I want that." We went out uh, again, my w- I take my wife to all these things that I want more of in Massachusetts. Yeah, so n- the the New England Innovation Academy out okay. in Framingham, I think it okay. is. Um, and she was like, wow, this is so cool. And they could be doing X, Y, and, right? And, yeah, like,
1: yeah.
0: Be, and then it doesn't feel like a risk as much. Right. By the way, they renamed their uh, college counselor the co- uh, the counselor of what's next oh, for those uh, students. I was great. like, oh, that's like that. cool. It's but great. isn't part
2: of the problem here too is that education is kind of this experienced good, right? You don't know what sure. you get until you go through it, mm-hmm. right? So is even if we know we have other options, Aren't we always afraid that we're going to make the wrong choice for our kids that yes. we can't and we, there's no do over really, right? right? Is that part of the issue here? And so we kind of just that traditional pull kind of brings us back because we don't want to take that
1: risk. Yes. And we for certain families, you get to the point that we talked about before where your child hits 12th grade and you get hit with, wait, what do you mean? He's not going to go to to college, right, and like that has to be such a massive slap in the face, and at that point, it's over.
0: Yeah, well what if we did more mastery based also on a few key things, like can you read by third grade and gave parents real information as opposed to the fake stuff that teachers are sending home right
1: right now? Right, right,
0: yeah. 90% of parents think that their kids are at or above grade level, and the answer is it's a third.
1: Yeah, and no (laughs) one knows to ask that question. And you really put teachers point. on their heels when you do ask that question. That's interesting. But no, I think it's a real, I mean, like if parents knew that that was the one thing that they should ask in every parent-teacher conference from kindergarten on, what, you know. What where, would that
0: change? There's certain stu- state soups, right, in Virginia and Rhode Island and elsewhere that are trying to send home uh, alongside the report card mm. an objective this is how your kid's doing on reading, yeah, right? Good. Like sort of- Is classes. it more of a
2: narrative type of thing? Is that yeah.
0: Well, is? and just to give clear information okay. to, the, to the families.
1: And is there a what, here's what and you can do? And then here's what you can that's do with you, yeah. it. Yep, okay. and then
0: that's the other piece, which yeah. is um, Virginia, I think their ESA bill failed, if I remember, but here's a set of tutoring resources, or like here's a few things that you could do to, yeah. to, to move the needle alongside of it.
1: Here's the question I'm going to leave you both with, and it can be about higher ed or K through 12, but if, you know, education is a Jenga block, you know, it's, it's set up. What's the one thing you think we could pull out and replace with something else and not break everything but make real change happen? Well, that's a literally experience. just came up with this right now, too, so I don't <laughs> That's think. a great question.
2: So, I mean, we've kind of addressed this in bits and pieces throughout the the podcast, but I think this idea of a... Kind of, we have two-year degrees and we have four-year degrees. I think that this idea that it cannot be a more flexible system where we enter students into higher education, some are on the two-year path, some are on the four-year path. Obviously, we bring competency-based, mastery-based uh, learning into it, but we also have a lot more exit points along the way so that we, again, going back to that figure I gave earlier, 40 million American adults who have some college credit and no degree mm. so that they have something. So I think that Moving this time-based piece of higher education, I think we can pull it out. Uh, Again, the CFOs might disagree with me, but I think we can pull it out. And thus, we could say we have actually more successful people out there because they're leaving after a year and a half, two years, three years. And we give them something that shows that they have completed X amount of learning that they can actually use some sort of physical asset that they can use in the workforce that yeah. people would appreciate. That to me, where we have this kind of flex system, because we have this flex system now, we just right. don't call it that, yeah. you know, right? This, you know, you come out at three years and you just have some credits, you don't and, have and we any we don't degree. actually
1: market it as an asset.
2: Right. No, you're a failure, right? right. right. By the way, meanwhile, no one's graduating in four years anyway. It takes them five or six years in many cases, right? right. So why don't we have, okay, you could be there. And by the way, we could build in graduate education to this. So we could say, you're going to be there anywhere from two to six years, Mm -hmm. and you're going to come out with an associate's degree. You're going to come out with some other sort of degree, Mm -hmm. other sorts of credentials, eventually a graduate degree if you want to stay for five or six years. That to me is, instead of just saying, there is like you know, three choices you have here, three types of degrees, a lot more flexibility in the system. I don't think that would break it.
1: And I think it would like, incentivize a stronger allegiance for each student to back to that institution. If, if everyone leaves acknowledging what they took away as opposed to what they didn't get to, It's very much a game changer, you know, when you can really talk about your assets and not deficits.
0: Well, and from a from a mental health yeah perspective, we would screw up far fewer students if we talked about what they had gained as opposed to what they had lost. And we've done a natural experiment on this BYU pathway, right? Put certificates on the front end. Oh, you had to get a certificate, uh, industry certificate, on the front end. So they pushed Gen Ed to the back. Oh, and so then immediately after the first semester or first year you had an industry-recognized credential. So now you could do two things. You could either go right into the job market with that or you could keep learning. But either way, you had built up affinity for the institution. And graduation rates increased 20 percentage points.
1: That's just amazing. that move more, that's so more amazing. than anything
0: else yeah. the advising anything else they done right. that moved the needle more than anything else well because so you didn't have cool.
2: to wait 3 or 4 you know you didn't have to wait right. 4 years to get something and
0: have value yeah. <laughs> and see value yeah. right yeah. well i think that's and so i guess that's where part of me was like gosh is there any answer to this but uh, because <laughs> and i was thinking well that's why all this pushes around finance for all or mm-hmm. right or computer science for all because it's mm-hmm. like it's a class and we just mm-hmm. sub it in for another class mm-hmm. and it's like in your
1: in in, my jenga block in analogy, block yeah.
0: analogy yeah. i'm literally pulling out the piece and i'm putting yeah. in another one of carnegie units right in its yeah. place right yeah. and so that's the easy stuff to do mm. but I, I i like where jeff went and i wonder if like the mastery-based transcript ideas could maybe be that thing as well yeah. it's because it's just pulling out sort of the credential as we've thought about it and putting something else in that's, that's saying what you can, no one can do with it.
1: And, and what do you think, how would a mayor be perceived if they said, as they you know, kind of um, presented next year's education budget, I'm going to allocate a million dollars or half a million dollars of our billion dollar budget or whatever the size of the budget is based on the, the place to innovation? Right, and maybe it's around yeah. monastery base, but I mean wh- that feels like that would be a big.
0: It, I mean, it should be a small. It, it should be a five to twenty percent part of anyone's budget yeah. on this stuff. Right,
1: innovation. Yes, yeah.
0: And how would they perceive
2: be perceived? Would they be perceived differently, for example, from? The parent by the parents, then the t- uh, how would the teachers perceive that? Yeah, the question is right. That's a, qu- it's a th- question because would the teachers see well? That's money that could be going could to be us. going to right.
0: me or right. or or it too shall pass, right? right. I'm going to shut right. the door and uh, we're we're <laughs> gonna, we're gonna, we're going to get through this. Yeah,
1: yeah. I, it's a good
0: question. I mean, the other one, frankly, actually, as I really think about it, like the the thing that every single school should fix and it would not break anything is yeah. to get the science of reading curriculum sh- mm. sh- shaped up, yeah. like. There is no reason kids should not be able to decode by third grade, right. and we can fix that. It will not break the system. Mm-hmm. It will support everything else that mm-hmm. comes after it, mm-hmm. and you don't need to revamp every single thing. Yeah, to do the all the knowledge based stuff and you yeah. know, building reading literacy from there, that's harder. Right, but that fundamental decoding and actually knowing how to read, mm-hmm. yeah, that is something we can solve. Like we know how to do that.
1: Do you think that we should sort of Netflix education in that you, as you like, let's say we move to either mastery based over time, or we just stick with the existing infrastructure, but like you, like you just, you are in college at Mm. some point, you know, and this does speak to the early college stuff, but what if everyone was in college by the time they were in 12th grade? And so, you know, you're already getting something from that next higher ed brand. George
0: Mason. Yeah. No. With George Mason, they have a partnership with Northern Virginia Community College. Okay. And so you enroll in a program at Northern Virginia Community College and you are also a George Mason student.
2: Right. You get an ID, you, you get, get everything an email
0: like address so and cool. you immediately start thinking of yourself as, Oh, I'm a George Mason student. Yeah. And so not surprisingly, the rate of transfer significantly higher, the rate of success significantly higher, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Right. Because we're social creatures. I mean, like it should like just be, to be about tribes. the next
1: episode of whatever no. hot television show. No, it and, could and be speaking about of lives. that
2: analogy, right? Like yeah. when we were growing up, I always tell my kids, I, like how you had, a, it was appointment television, right? You had to yeah. watch a show on a certain date and if you missed it, too bad. Aren't they and, horrified and if, they're They horrible. do not <laughs> they don't get it this at all. all. And then I'm trying to explain the whole VCR thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you could ever figure out how to tape the yeah, show, yeah. you could get it. But but this idea that you can't just watch it all at the same time. And and then yeah. you think about that in education the same thing, right? We have to show up to a class at three o'clock on a Thursday afternoon. Yeah. Why can't we just put it out there yeah. and, and let the students consume it when they have time and how much they want to consume all at the same time, right? Why totally. can't you binge watch it, especially if you have mastery in some of this stuff, Yeah, totally. just like you would there?
1: And it does show how people change.
0: Yes, yes, you can. Yes, yes, we, we can. can. We, we can, can change.
2: Now, of course, you know Hollywood is really struggling with this too. So I'm not quite sure we always want to use that analogy because okay, okay. higher ed or you know K yeah, 12 yeah, will this, say, well, but, they haven't figured it out yet either. Yeah, but this right? goes
0: to the point I think. Right, is that new organizations come like Netflix yeah. Yeah. wasn't a, 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 right. My students at Harvard, right? I, I can't remember if I told you the story. Like we were talking about disruptive innovation and yeah. blah blah blah, and all of a sudden we're going down this rabbit hole. Blockbuster versus Netflix, and then I midway through the conversation, I was like, "So, how many of you actually know what Blockbuster yeah, no is?" Idea. Two yes. hands go up,
1: yeah. and they're great. like, "Wait a
0: minute! So, you had to go to a store to get?" It
1: blows their mind. Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, and the, I remember saying to my son, "Yeah, and sometimes like the video, it's you know, gone. the videotape do not work." He's like, <laughs> "What?" <laughs> <laughs> or like, it wasn't there. And we you were okay went
2: there, with it. You it was you like,
0: went oh, Yeah, it, was, it yeah. was an acceptable failure yeah, exactly. right? and like, yeah. they're, they're, they, well, they were like, "So, what happened if the movie wasn't there?" Yeah how did you get a recommendation for the next movie? Yeah. I was like, was, oh, you went to the woman at the front yeah, of the right, cashier right, right, and right. you yeah. just asked, you know, what else should I and see? And you talked
1: to people. And you talked to there people. There was conversation. There was conversation then, yeah. and
0: you <laughs> brought the movie home and maybe your date liked it and maybe they didn't. Totally but <laughs> like
1: that. that was great. Well, thank you guys. I'm excited. I'm already excited to do this again, but thank you so much thank for you. spending time it with me It was great to be here. Thank you. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Michael Horn and Jeff Salingo. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your friends. And to learn more about incentives and particularly how they guide big decisions around education, check out our other podcast, Last Night at School Committee. We recap every Boston school board meeting and discuss the biggest decisions impacting students. Subscribe to Last Night at School Committee in your podcast app. Have a great day.